0: Couch Wisdom Uh, Couch Wisdom uh, Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Chicago producer R.P. Boo invented footwork with his 1997 track, Baby Come On. A dancer at first, Boo bumped up the tempo of Ghetto House and established a new template that lit a fire under an entire generation of dancers and producers. In the wake of Footwork's expansion outside of Chicago, the Planet Mu label released two retrospectives of R.P. Boo's pioneering work, 2013's Legacy and 2015's Classics, Volume One. Boo, meanwhile, continues to produce and DJs around the world, the enduring success of his music proving that there's still no one quite like him. In his lecture at the 2016 Red Bull Music Academy, R.P. Boo recalled the trials, tribulations, dances, and productions that made him a pioneer of a unique Chicago sound. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom.
1: How are you doing today? Well, I'm fine. I'm glad to be here. And to see you all and to be able to talk and give you a little bit of history about myself as well as the music and where it's about to go.
2: Indeed, we have a lot to talk about and show today about the roots of footwork, but let's start with your roots. Where are you from in Chicago? Give us a little, set the scene for us a little bit about where you grew up and what it was like in your household.
1: Well, I'm an older cat. A lot of people thought I started uh, young, but I started in my 20s producing. But my childhood days, I'm born and raised on the west side of Chicago. Uh, 32, 24 West Fulton, Uh Within that area, a lot of uh, good times coming up. Uh, I moved to the south side in the late 80s. So I was born to be like they say, you that west side kid. Um, uh, Life was good, listen to music, listen to the radio, listen to gospel music, Uh, had a lot of singers in the household, moms go to church, sing gospel music, my father was a bass guitar player, he moved to Boston in like 1977, around that time, other than that, kids, we, we go run down the street, throw rocks at the bus. Uh, Roll tires down the street, take the big wheels, take the wheels off and create little miniature go-karts. School was fine. Other than that, I used to always have this dream and see these commercials and I see like these old funk bands. And one day I saw, I think it was like Earth, Wind & Fire on this commercial. The bell-bottom pants and the trumpet players in the background. And I just looked and I said, one day I want that to be me. I wanted to be a person that always played like the lead, guitar, the bass, but that didn't happen. Other things took place, and in the days to come, only time will tell, but I didn't know what was gonna happen, so hey, the 80s was good. Now I'm on the south side of Chicago, permanently. Uh, far south to where I'm very well-respected, I could walk anywhere in the city I want to walk. Uh, I Let
2: could be- me ask you something, because a ahead. lot of people in tracks and stuff talk about the South Side of Chicago. What is the significance of that compared to the West Side or the East Side? Were there a lot of DJs and producers living in the South Side, or is that where things were going on? What-
1: South Side is flooded with DJs and producers. I didn't know nothing about them until I moved to the South Side. I only knew, a couple of people that was out west, but it had a bigger scene because that's where a lot of Chicago house surfaced and went to the south side of Chicago. You got like Terry Hunter, Emmanuel Pippen, uh, Lil' Lewis now was out there. Um, then you had Frankie Knuckles go out there every now and then, but a lot of the people that was out south was more househead than anything, and that's where a lot of these DJs was coming in from. Mike Dunn, uh, man, the list goes on and on, and like the majority is still right now today. A lot of the big parties of house parties are done on the south side of Chicago. Still like that today.
2: So you weren't really allowed to go to parties for a while, right?
1: Nah. D- How
2: me? old were you when you went to your first like club night or party?
1: Tell the truth I was in my 20s Actually I was in my 20s Uh, I didn't do nothing in high school I was just this kid that Go to school Get good grades Come home All the other kids would go out and party And have a nice time And I was just more focused on Getting a high school graduate uh, Being a high school graduate And getting my diploma Um, I think the first The first big party I went to before I started going to club and that's when I met House of Maddox and when I walked into this party I was just introduced to the sounds of Dion and Milton and the subs was hitting so hard but when the Kids walk past me, they just go find this circle and it just started dancing. And I was just hooked right then and then. I was like, what is this I just walked into? It was just something I'd never seen before and I never heard anybody talk about it, but I saw it firsthand and I just fell in love. And we'll get to House Maddox in just a
2: quick second. But before that, I just want to say, you were listening to the radio, right? Yes. So that was your introduction to house music,
1: radio was the introduction to house music. Yes, it was. What were you listening to? Oh, I was listening to our uh, WBMX, the Hot Mix Five. Uh, one of the the main people is on there was uh, his name was Keith Farley, but they call him uh, Farley Jack Master Funk. Farley Jack Master Funk was just brilliant on those turntables. That dude, once he get on, I don't care who was on before him. When they hear Farley play, everybody bring out their tapes and press record. I don't care if the radio station was talking along it. That dude played tracks and stuff that he made. He played like Detroit house music, but his mixing skills and his scratching skill was just out of this world. I'm talking about jazz. I wouldn't record nobody else but Farley, and... The way he played was just like bananas. But that was the radio. But what made me go into it another way, I went to a party my cousins used to have, and it was these two brothers named Chris and John. And they had come out with the music same as play play, but the way they played it was just like grimy. I was like, these dudes sound better than the radio. I said, now nah, I got to do it. And a lot of people didn't know that uh, my style was created off of that. And that's why you have the way I set my uh, breakdowns. So uh, my chemistry, when I make my tracks, when I first started, if you started playing any other person's track with, a break, with the breakdown, it blends, it just creates that chemistry. But it, it, was, from the, it was from those days. And a lot of people like, how did you do that? I listened to the radio. I studied. I, I, I put it, I, I learned and put it in my music and it just came out phenomenal. It, so, hey, it worked for me. It could work for anybody else, but they wanted to go somewhere else. Hey, I stuck with the chemistry and I left it that way.
2: Amen. Uh, When you're talking about house Somatics and DJ Dion and Milton, uh, that gets to be a little bit later. So what year was it that you went to your
1: first party? 1992. I had graduated from high school in 1991. So 1992, uh, I was like, let me do something now. I don't have to stay in the house. Moms was like, you're out of high school now. What are you gonna do? you got a job go out do some things oh I can okay I'm gone (laughs) I'm outside but I was able to manage that go to work party and enjoy buying new equipment turntables and it just started and when I met House of Matic the day I went to go trial for them was the day of the beginning to where I'm at right now.
2: Okay, so what is House of Maddox? House
1: House-o-matic was a uh, dance troupe of uh, teenagers south side of Chicago that uh, wanted to do something different with the uh, teenagers. A couple of guys, well the president name is Ronnie Sloan He have two brothers, David and Dave And they danced a lot Ronnie danced as well And he went to Gage Park High School So a couple of guys that I knew That lived in the neighborhood Used to dance for them And when they danced It was like They get about four or five guys A couple of girls And they come on the streets And they go find people That they knew knew how to dance And battle them on the streets And it was fun but it was something to where once the people in the neighborhoods and other places started seeing them, they started coming in. And House of Matter decided one day, hey, let's throw some parties. When they started doing a parties, that's when they linked up with Deion and Milton. And the first party that they did, they did it for uh thing, two nights in a row, and they packed it. I'm talking about if the fire marshal would have came, they would have shut it down. They they packed it. And from that day on, it was just history for them. They go to different places in Chicago, south side of Chicago, find like uh, storefront joints or halls and talk to the owner and do parties. But the word got around town so fast to the point that what uh, all you had to do was mention how somatic and people was there. So I had to get curious. I like, I need to go find these dudes. And I found them. And man, good times would Good times would have built a nice bond with them too. So you originally
2: were trying out to be a dancer. Yes. Right? Yes. That and wasn't the you you weren't intending to be the DJ.
1: You nah, were trying DJ, out to dance. It was just more dancing because when I first actually seen them dance and perform at a uh it was at a college, community college called uh Kitty the King College. And we did, this. I was dancing with this group called Mega Move. So we get on, get ready, to go on stage, so the president of Mega Move like, we're not gonna dance today. We're like, why? So this one guy came out and said, that routine you guys doing? That's House of Maddox routine. So we was like, what? How is it that we get House of Maddox routine? Because one of the guys that's to come show us, he was a member of House of Maddox. And so the guy said, well, we still gonna do the routine. And house of was in there. But when I saw house of do this routine, you know how you go to this concert and the favorite person comes on and the, and the kids just start screaming? When house of did the first four moves, I jumped up and started screaming. I'm talking about what the is this? Every move that we did, I saw it differently when they did it. Percolators, the way we did Percolators, it was cool to the people on the street, but they changed it. But you could still see it. I like, oh my God, I got to get in this group. And the track that they was dancing to, it was one of Dion's tracks. And that just fit. It was just something totally different. It was the dancing was on point. The track was on point. It was nothing like ever seen before. And man, House of Maddox kept that reign from the day they started. I don't know what year they started. But in 1998, uh, situation took part where the group had uh, dismember for a while. But up to 1998, no dance group in Chicago could even touch them.
2: Okay, so now we're getting into the part of uh, Ghetto House and Dance Mania and Chicago House kind of speeding up, because I guess that must have been what house o Maddox yes. was dancing to. So you try out to be a dancer, and then uh, the, guy, the guy running house o um said, do you want to be a dancer, or are you going to be the DJ?
1: Yes, it was, um, i say, when I first started, after uh, we got into the dance, and where we used to go get our mixtapes done, I used to do a couple of them for the group. They worked out pretty fine. But then, doing these parties for house of it was like, I was the main DJ, even if they brought in Dion and Milton. Um, Dion and Milton uh, might close out, but I'll open it up. But it was like, to the point, Ronnie was like, hey, okay, what you want to do? I see you love to do your music, just spin the records or dance, he said, because we need you to be in one place and just focus on that. And he was like, what do you want to do? Do you want to dance or do you just want to uh, make the tracks and be the DJ? That was an easy question for me. I was like, I'm not going to sit back and keep dancing. I'm going to the music. That was simple. <laughs> hey, thanks for the ultimatum, but hey, I'm going. This music is where it's at. I bought this equipment and I ain't finna stop spending no equipment for to stop spending no rackets for nobody. Hey, this is what I want to do, so I took the opportunity and I ran. I hey, I'm still getting down now <laughs>
2: You do, maybe we'll see some of it tonight.
1: When oh you yeah. Play. Oh yeah.
2: Oh yeah. You and you and Tay can have a footwork battle. <laughs> hey, we we we'll
1: get out.
0: I know I've seen it.
2: Um, the reason that I think this is so interesting though, is because you started off DJing for a dance crew and making tapes for a dance crew. and yes. that's um, a really important foundation, I think, of the footwork sound is that it was something created um, for the dancers to dance to, and a conversation between you guys as the artist, as the producers and DJs and the people who are on the floor right. doing the moves which is not necessarily true of all forms of electronic music?
1: Nah, it was, um, the, the meat of that is basically, uh, when we was doing the mixtapes, it was more of the dance group presidents asking us to put a tape together and still include like radio songs, even if it was like Madonna, some Prince, or Jagged Edge, the slow dance routines. And they'd be like, well, uh, we know you got some tracks here around here somewhere. Throw some tracks in. Okay, that's an opportunity as the tracks I was making over the years could be put into this mix. But what happened, that changed it into the more dynamic of the footwork, saying it's more of after the performances was over. And if they have like an after party, there wasn't no more five, six, seven, eights. Let's do this routine, no more. It was, let's do this. All night long for six hours, let's do this. So we planned the ghetto house, planned the booty house, and we were still able to see these kids pull out these footwork moves all night long. They might do a couple of like body moves, whips, but they just focused on the floor. And with that being said, after I started, and the other DJs started doing it as well, like when Rashad came in, we actually was feeding off these people and feed with them. So we had the opportunity to experiment our music with them. And as the week goes, the months goes, it was more of man, that track is hot. That track is hot. Come on, man, we want some more. And when it, when they thought that they were settled with that track we'd throw another one on them. And every, it got to the point to where when I walked through the party, even though I always had a nine to five, I could come in and play six or seven new tracks. And when I start off, I would play the new track right then and there. And the kid's like, why are you steady doing this to us? Hey, i like to see you move. And... They just wanted more, so everybody just got addicted to it. And like uh, a lot of other DJs will say, you see what you just started, man? These kids out here, they don't want to hear nothing else. They just want to hear this, this fast stuff. And, and what, what is it? Hey, we didn't, we didn't have a name for it. We just played. We, I'm talking about we just played from the heart. And we love to see them do their thing, and as they danced, it made us do more. And that was just our gift back to them. So they was gifted to us. We was gifted to them.
2: You're DJing these House-O-Matic events. What, at what point do you decide to buy some equipment and make your own tracks?
1: Well, uh, I actually started buying equipment in 1991, as soon as I got out of high school. But the decision to make tracks, it was, um, it really wasn't on my mind because I had the gift to play the music just. I don't care who it was back in the days, uh, even if it was Jamager, DJ Funk, whatever, if I had all their records, I could play it just as good as them, if not even better. But it was just about how I blend and make my uh, sets. But one day after I had met DJ Sluggo, um, it was more of, hey, we need a new CD, let uh, I me mean a new uh, mixtape made. So, they said, we're going to get Sluggo to make the tape. Go over to Sluggo's house, and I see this drum machine. So this one of young ladies says, uh, how do you make your tracks? So he, he pulled out the R70. He had this small, I think, Gemini mixer uh, sampler. He had, like, thing, three buttons on it, and he explained uh, how he was making the tracks. So he actually demonstrated so I'm like, that's cool. Uh look like it's kind of easy. So um, a couple of weeks later, I was like, where did you get the uh, drum machine from? And he was like, go to the goods center. Uh, he said like about five or six hundred bucks. So I said, okay. Got my paycheck on a Friday, went to the goods center that Saturday. And went and picked up the R 70 and Came with no instruction manual, no no book. It was the last one. So the guy says, uh, we don't have any more coming in that we know of, but uh, we will sell you the display bottle. Do you want that? Yeah, I'm here. The only thing I got was uh, they wiped it off and gave me my power pack to- and sent me home. And I was just so glad to have it. And that's when I just started making my tracks that was like late 1995, and I had some problems with it because I didn't know what to do. I, I seen the press record, I hear the click, click, click. I didn't know how to extend the bars, I didn't know i do none, it was just set on one bar. And I just started from that. and. The rest is like history. I wasn't using samples at, at the time. Then I had bought my sample sampler from uh, DJ Dion. The same sampler that he played, uh, made some of his biggest hits off of. Uh, and I just went to work and the tracks I started making started making some attention. So I was like, man, I'm getting the hang of this. And the people even Slug, was like, man, you got some nice tracks. And I was like, did I really think that I would make it this far in this last amount of time to be to the point to where people said, you got nice tracks? I was like, uh, I don't know what it is, but hey, why stop?
2: So you're talking about the Roland R70 is yes. the machine that you had? And a lot of this sound of ghetto house and even footwork comes from not having a whole lot of sampling time, right?
1: Not a, not a sampling time. That's why you had to make it what you could do, as long as it's a funky beat or a nice dance tune, that's what counts. That's the groove. The sample is something that people might use to, like they say, it's a cosmetic background. It'll it'll spice it up a little bit. But before I really got into it, the west side of Chicago was known for what they call beat tracks and no samples. It was just crazy, funky drum patterns and hi hats, snares, but it's rhythmatic, and it was just people just drive to it, just like filling in a body and just go to work. So that that played a big part too. So the west side was more beat tracks, south side was more samples. You have to just listen. Never close your ears to anything. You you'll be surprised at what you could do. And just, even hearing somebody's conversation, you could just do a nice track.
2: Yeah, you've made a lot of tracks that are inspired by everyday life, like things that people might take for granted. Yeah. Like the ice cream truck. <sighs> what happened with the ice cream
1: truck? I got that that idea from uh, watching Eddie Murphy, uh, <laughs> And then once I say that I couldn't do nothing but laugh. And I said, you know what? I'm going to make a track off the ice cream truck. And not knowing that uh, this the same time a Master P did his. So that's why I actually got that sample from, from off the Master P ice cream truck. And... Once I found out it was just that open space, I was like, "Oh yeah, I got you now." And the, <laughs> and I was like let me try something different, and it happened, and people just fell in love instantly to that. So, hey, that was just the begin. That was just the beginning of my days. And you had
2: uh, a little girl who was your neighbor that you yeah asked to do some vocals
1: yeah and uh, as I told her what to say and. Same thing like Eddie Murphy said, I got some ice cream and you can't have none. I just wanted to see a kid do it, and it
2: worked. That's cool. I love how you're just incorporating elements of everyday life. It's not like you have to go find an orchestra sample or some really
1: highfalutin (laughs) thing every time. Well, Baby Come On was one of the tracks that I really wanted somebody to be on it as a, a, a young lady to be on it, but... Everybody I asked, "No, I don't want to. I don't want to be on it. I don't want to do no track." So I just left it as is, and it became a hit, with or without.
2: Um, I want to ask you about this other track called "Pop Machine." Oh yeah. So you were where were you working at the time you made "Pop Machine"? I was
1: working at a quick loop uh, called Speedway Oil Change. I think I was there f- well over like eight years when I made the track. And how I came up with the, uh, the concept, right outside the door of one of the bays, uh, we always had a pop machine sitting there. And for years, we went through a Pepsi and a Coca-Cola machine. But it's like for some reason, just this, one day this guy goes to the pop machine and he puts his money in it. And he was like, hey man, what's wrong with this doggone pop machine? We were like, it took your money, right? You're like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, did it have a gun to you? Did it rob you? Like, <laughs> like, you got jokes. I'm like, nah. I say that pop machine, we forgot to put a, a sign up there uh, to let people know that it's not working. So I walked up to her. I'm like, man, you probably have to walk up to it and just keep pressing the button like work, 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 work. And it just hit me. I'm like, you know what? I'm going home. And I'm gonna make this. I'm gonna make a track called Pop Machine. I told my guy, I say, Barlin, I'm going home. I said, I'm gonna make a track called Pop Machine. Wait till you hear. The next day, I played it to him. Like, man, you a genius. He, said. <laughs> he like, you is a genius. And a lot of people loved the track. I never put it out. I'm looking to put it out real soon. But it it worked. This track just worked.
2: So, what did the oil ch- guys at the oil change place that you were working at think about the fact that you were DJing and making footwork?
1: Oh, they they was very supportive. If I make uh, if I was doing like big uh, CDs, a couple of that buy it. They they would buy it. But they was like, uh, this is just your gift. They d- work ten hours a day, go home, make tracks, go to sleep, come back. The next day, another 10 hours. So I was comfortable with what I was doing. It was just working and seeing the public come in. I had great ideas to make tracks. Uh, Just watching people come through. I made like a good eight or nine different tracks just watching people come through and the surroundings of this place. So Machine was just one of them.
2: Do you always have this much fun making your
1: tracks or do you ever agonize over them? I have a lot of fun. Uh, Especially back in those days, uh, I used to catch myself making tracks and actually dancing while I'm making these tracks. So as as I'm dancing, I used to get a little bit out of hand and forget I was, uh, I need to finish this track. (laughs) You were dancing at work too, right? Oh my God. Oh man, I was known on 59th and Western. I was known for... That dude is always dancing. I used to wait to the public, tra- the CTA, which is the uh, our transit authority bus, come as soon as it stops at the stop side, at the stoplight, and the door open. I just start dancing. Like, what's wrong with this dude? Even the the, the owner of the job like, somebody go get caving. He's always outside dancing. Come on in, work on the cars. Come. On. But I always did it all my downtown and. um, same as like with the CD cover dude on 59th Street with the mask. I used to go outside with that mask on and just stand there and just dance. I uh they had like this James Brown uh doll that you press the button and he started dancing and he played uh I feel good. I used to take it and sit on the uh the bus stop bench. As soon as the people get off the bus, I press the button and oh, I feel good. i be dancing with it. Da, 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 da. Did this for years. Just, for years. I was just always a happy person.
2: You're lucky. Not everybody is that happy all the time. Well, I want to ask you about another track that has a less happy story, which is uh, this track that Sluggo put out, but it was actually yours. Yeah. We could talk about it. Okay, well first of all, this track it ha what's the name? Wait, it's 114799. 114799.
1: Why was it called that? 114799, it was um well to get the story going, um I was in this record pool and uh, Pharoah Munch came out with uh, Simon Says. So uh, go to the record pool, and the guy normally has the record set out, and he'll be playing tunes. So he was actually playing it. i was like, wait a minute. That got uh, Godzilla in it. I was like, do we get this record this month? He was like, yeah. So as we was packing up, uh, two more other DJs from Chicago, and one of them had Radio clout. He was a radio DJ, and the other guy was more of a track maker as well. So i like, I gotta beat him to the punch. I get home and I was like, it's a instrumental. I said, please let this have this instrumental part just direct to just the Godzilla music by itself, and that it did. So when I played it after I made it, it was still it still had no name when I made it. But when I made it, it was while I was at, when I played it. Uh, the 11 stands for the 11th month, with this November. 47th is a party spot where we used to play some of our biggest tracks and just bang them. And 99 is the year. So 11, 47, 99. That's the name I gave it, and it stuck with it. And, man, that track just changed, just just totally changed the game. Just It just went somewhere to where I didn't even know it was going to go that far, but I did enjoy making it, and I believe when I played it, every time I played it, I smiled, and I smiled big.
2: So... That track ended up coming out on a label from Detroit, owned by DJ Godfather, who's probably best known for being one of the architects of Ghetto Tech. Yes. Came out on his database label. Um, But it came out as DJ Sluggo's tune and not yours.
1: Uh, Yeah. Beer Slugger was uh we was real good friends and even with Baby Come On the Ice Cream Truck and the other tracks uh he was the type of person that would always try his best to look out for people and Dance Mania had just collapsed so uh, we we was aware that we wanted to push this to get it out on other labels to give other labels an opportunity. And what happened was that after it came out, it did come out on a label where my name was announced on it. And it just had uh, DJ Slug or the remixes. But what had happened was that uh, we didn't know that it took off because I I was at work. And I didn't go to Detroit. I didn't go nowhere Wells, Spare, Rashad, Dion, I think Funk went um Clint And when word got back It was Hey Sluggo did our uh, He's taking credit for your track That you did But I already knew that Because Sluggo asked me to do uh Could he do a remix Fine, no problem I actually gave him my record So he could do it Chop his samples up And I was like, yeah, I know Sluggo have a remix. And the word got, but like, nah, it's not the remix that he's claiming. It's the one that you actually did. And when I saw the label and I saw the print, it was DJ Sluggo's uh, remixes. But that wasn't the remix. It was the actual track. So he was able to put what he want because I had no access to Godfather. And that's how they got, that's, that's when it just went... No, I can't do this no more because Sluggo was not the only person that I had these problems with. I had problems with this with other people. That's why I left and became D-Dynamic. Once I became D-Dynamic, I saw the falling of a lot of people because me being able to sit back on the tracks and not come out into their presence, they couldn't hear me no more. And when I come back, the tracks that I left them off with, they were still playing. And so I used to always come back with more heat, more heat, more heat. More. How you do it? I caught on to it. I say, you know what? It's a dirty game out here, but you have to learn from it. And I was able to hold my head up high and just say, you know what? I just had to learn from it. And what happened after that? And when I made the the remix, the other one that you was asking me about, oh, same sample. The same samples, nothing changed. I just reformatted the beat, and it took off as well. So you put out this remix
2: that you're referring to on Classics Volume 1 on Planet Mew some years later, I guess 2015? Um, Mm -hmm. And this one is called 025203.
1: What does okay. that mean? 02, February. <laughs> five two. I used to live on uh, the street called honorary 5200. That's the 52. 03, 2003.
2: Got you. I'll just bring this up because the streets are important. We'll, get, we'll be talking about uh, yeah. some streets in a little bit, but... As I seem to remember, that's 2003. Around those times, as you mentioned, Dance Mania, which was like the premier Chicago ghetto house, street house label, was sort of at the close. Ghetto tech was kind of going on in Detroit, but you weren't in Detroit, you are in Chicago. And a lot of people from the house scene in Chicago, like especially ghetto house, were like kind of trying to figure out what to do and what was next, because the label that they were all had a home at was no longer, and like, what's the next thing? So how did it get from stuff that sounds like this to the more broken stuff that we know today as footwork?
1: Well, um, after that started going on, even though we still had our, at this point in time, it was uh, a young lady named uh, Angelique. She decided one day she wants to do these dance troupe, Competitions, how somatic had dis- diminished, went somewhere else, uh, and the up-and-coming footworkers started going into different dance groups, and we were able to have them come to like different park districts and have competitions against each other. And what was going on was I used to set up majority of the sound systems for these kids and always was able to play new tracks, and we was putting out mixtapes and mixed CDs at that point in time, but then it was this guy named Nick Parnell, we call him Nick's the man, and he was just this phenomenal dancer that couldn't nobody, just, couldn't nobody beat him that was in the party, because he knew where he was going, but it was good people that was up there with him, But Other DJs knew him through me because I used to be in this crew called Gutter Thugs. And Gutter Thugs was like the top to come in to the footwork crews had to go through us. But Nick and other DJs like, we need to do something with this dude. They would make track after track after track to try to throw him off. And they just couldn't. He would just listen. So he said, you know what, man? He said, pay attention to what we always do. He said, they wait for the bass to drop. Then they start dancing. He said, we didn't burn them already. Well, what we mean, burn them is basically if we know how to footwork, We could dance to anything as long as there's a rhythm, there's a pattern to it we would always start off dancing. We didn't care as long as it has a rhythm to it. So I said, you know what? I got an idea. I said, I'm gonna make this track and it's not gonna have no bass kicks, none. But it's gonna be to the point to where you can flow. So it was this guy named Darion. Darion used to dance for uh, Wolfpack. And he was our first victim. And when he, him and Nick started dancing, so I played the track, it's called Plat solo. Plat solo was to the point it just played, and it was uh, off Space Odyssey 2001. Uh, Reason why I sampled that, because Ric is one of my favorite wrestlers. So I had to use that against him. And when we played it, Nick, did, he did it I'm talking about He covered the whole floor But Darion Was standing there And he gave me this signal Like When is the bass gonna drop? We got him I said we, we just We pulled it off We got him After that I started making the tracks And I separated Took It was no more four for us. Took it just Gapped it But made it to the point to what you could see us doing, and Rashad caught it. Uh, When Rashad caught it, then Clint grabbed it. Then other people started. Then it became like hereditary. Then after that, I took away all the claps and replaced the claps for snares, snares and hi hats. And that's when footwork really got its the sound really got its signature. So, I'm glad you mentioned DJ
2: Rashad. May he rest in peace. Um, when When is the first time that you met him? Rashad is the founder of the Tech Life crew and a, the guy that a lot of people around the world first associated with the Footwork Sound. How to, tell me about the first time you guys met.
1: Uh, I met Rashad uh, at this place called the Elk Lodge and it was an incident that took place that night That it happens every now and then But after so many years If, if a, a, a small commotion or fight break out We turn the music down And uh, we seize the problem Make sure the police come in And conduct the business outside So this one night uh, This guy, we had an issue So the guy said, turn off the music Okay, cool, turn the music off. So I'm standing in front of the DJ booth, but right along to my left, there's a stage to where a crowd of people came up to see over my head to make sure nothing else was going on. And this one guy, uh, Ronnie was saying, well, turn the music up. This one guy comes past, he say, man, listen here. If you turn that music back on, me and you gonna have a problem. And this dude looked like he could knock a brick wall down. (laughs) So I'm like, you know what? Uh uh, I'm fine. So a crowd of guys come up on the side of me, and this dude just stands there over my head. He looks at me. He said, Hey man, can I get on? (laughs) Who is somebody better get this dude because he don't know, hey, We can't start this music back up. But that dude was Rashad. I didn't know who he was until the next two weeks later. And I started listening to him and I started hearing him, but not knowing he was already following me. Uh, He was inspired by the music that we do, but Rashad already had access to radio stations and producing tracks. So with that being said, uh a couple of months later we moved out to the south suburbs at a spot called Cavallini's. Rashad was DJing when I walked in. And Rashad he was wrecking, I'm talking about wrecking the party, him and Spin, killing it. And he was like, Well, get on. I want you to get on. So I played like four tracks before the music got turned off me into what the end of the party. But he's telling everybody, like, man, this is the dude. At that point in time, I was not RP Boo. I was DJ Boo. And he say, if you can, next week, make sure you hit early. So when I came the next following week, that's when they got to see me. But Rashad, this is when I really first got to hear him. Those tracks that dude was playing was like, I knew where the tracks was coming from, the samples that he was using, but he just had his own little twist to him that could nobody touch but him. And I was like, this dude is just nasty. And anything that I did after that, even if it was a concept to what, he like, man, how you grab that? he complimented. it. And from that, that point on, man, we just had one of the greatest bonds of just producing tracks and just feeding off each other. But. Yeah, I still remember that dude. Hey, man, can I get on?
2: Nah. (laughs) I mean, Rashad and Spin were pretty young when you first met them, right?
1: Yes, they were still in high school. They were like, what, 16, 17? I think 16 to 17, yeah.
2: Because you you were describing you're kind of like the big brother since you were a little bit older than they were.
1: uh, I would say that was like 97. That put me at uh, 25 years old. Yeah, they they was babies. With the way footwork tracks are being made today, and after Rashad started, it was Rashad started our uh, network with other people th- with drum and bass. It was more of our uh, of uh, mainstream sounds, and a lot of the guys came in after that started footwork, but. When they get into those tracks, they bring them back home to the organic of it. When Spin says it all the time to those guys, oh, you gotta dance all beat now. You gotta dance to the source. Oh, that stuff you was doing before you heard this, now we really finna see if it really works. If you can't get in line with this, it's not that you can't, not saying that they can't dance, he's telling them this is your format. Learn the format. You, once you learn the format, then come out. But if you have to go backwards, that's, don't just jump into it. Study it before you get in. And that's what it does.
2: What makes a good track that a dancer would want to footwork to?
1: Depend on a producer. It, it really does. I'm not the only one that that does it. Uh Tracksman could do it every now and then, uh, Clint can do it, Spin could do it. It's just what you have coming from your heart and what you want the track to deliver. My main approach is to be able to creep into your body just the sounds, it's a good subwoofers, the sound to work, even if you're not focusing on it, but being able to have some type of melody to where catch a person's attention. If they can't dance, one of my greatest things I like to see people do is bawly face up. Like, what the is this? <laughs> what is this I'm listening to? Not with the, I don't like it, but it caught their attention. That's what does it, that's just the start. And when people see the orchestra orchestration of, of the footworkers doing it, a lot of people learn, and got into footwork just because of that. And just say, hey, what is this? What did y'all just bring me to? Man, I gotta learn how to do this. Is it hard? Is, is learn, once you learn it, you do footwork is, the basics, after you learn the basics, it's not hard, but it does take some time. Well, once you master the basics, you can pretend that you're a skateboard, and it fits in. You could do jumping jacks. You could do push-ups. It fits in, so that's why I tell people anybody could do it. Just don't rush it, but it will come. So that's what the music does.
2: It seems like you spend a lot of time with the samples and with them looping and figuring out ways where they can loop and say different things than they are, like maybe than the sample originally says like you you seem to do a lot of telling stories through the samples that you use,
1: yeah um that's my that's the main goal for to tell the story it's, it's like be orchestrating uh a scene, but just let the music tell the story, so that's how it is like what well, uh, what I did uh, what you're gonna do for both legacy it was the same thing. With telling the story. What you got to got to do? It's, I just took that. That was one of my favorite ones that I worked on. Uh, one of the last tracks I actually, when I first really, really got into it, is when I did this track called Under The Stat. Under The Stat was supposed to come out on uh, Legacy, but we gave it to the Japan version, but that's when I really... Figured out how to work the R seventy with a uh, Tascam track board and channel the different samples without putting it inside the sampler itself, and it just came out so beautiful and lovely. I'm like, oh, now I got it. But this was like 2009, so if I'm doing damage before then, I'm like, where is it going to go once I get what I really want? So it's still so much new stuff to come and being orchestrated. I still have certain ideas with certain songs that I would like to use to help enhance that, and uh, that's why I like. Hey, if it works, it works. But I like to hear, like I love to hear people talk about having a good time, listen to the music, and that makes me want to do more for them.
2: I mean, you've been making tracks since the early to mid-90s until now. And it wasn't, like you told me, it wasn't until you were 41 or 40 that you started traveling, DJing, playing this music. And, you know, things happen. Like, this Fallout with Sluggo and, um, you know, other people around you started touring or getting bigger. Like, what kept you going through all this time? Did you ever want to quit and just be like, ah, well, I haven't you know, release this by now, so I'm just gonna stop making music, or like I got too busy with my work and my life, or what were what were you thinking like during these various points, or did that not bother you? No,
1: nah, uh, I worked. And uh, me being able to work in the, at Speedway 10 and Oil, I worked there from 1995 to 2010, so they gave me a good 15 years. After, I say, eight of those years, Was gone, I was like uh, immune to work. That was it. My playtime was just making tracks, but to be able to see Spin and Rashad go out and travel, and Rashad loved the tracks. So I was able to still give him the tracks. I said, if I can't play them, at least I know they would get played. And that's what kept me going and him. Actually giving me the reports back To say these tracks are They really doing their things And that's afterwards That's when I got the uh, Okay approach with the Hey would you like to uh, be a part Of trying to put your music Back out through uh, this label Called Planet Moon. I thought about what happened Previous years But i was like this being The Rashad I ain't worried about them why, because they was one of the main ones who came back and gave me the report and had to help clear it up about I was the original person who made the 1147.99 and they always had my back. So, Rashad was like, hey man, what you wanna do? I didn't think twice, I just went. And the rest is history. And did Rashad also tell you that you were gonna go on the road as a DJ? <laughs> he, uh told me that uh, he was always talking about me on the road. Then one day, he came back from off this uh, tour, I think it was in 2009. So he come back off the London tour, him and Spin. And me and our, I wasn't married at the point in time, but soon to be wife was talking. So I said, I want you to meet Spin and Rashad. And I haven't seen them in so many months. And it's like every time I see them, it was like a, it was a big smile on my face because I was proud of the success. And I'm going around the world, so Rashad finally walks up. He say, hey bro, it's time for you to go. What you mean? He say, they ready for you. He say, we been telling them, now it's time for you to go. I said, Rashad, you know I got this job, and you know I can't go. I said, but if I do have a chance, you have to let me know six to eight months in advance. He was like, oh, I know. He said, that's what I told him. So Rashad always had that brain. He already knew. Hey, let him know a year in advance. He said, they waiting on you, bro. He said, you gotta go. Believe me, it's sucking my head for And that's when uh, we had already did Bangs of Works, Volume 1 and Volume 2. So... I gave him uh, this track called uh, Area 72. Nobody knew about Area 72. Nobody in the United States knew about this track. Rashad was the only person I gave it to. And I say, play this while you out on tour. So he says, "Uh, okay bro, I'll play it. So he sent me a text via email. Hey bro. Area City 2 doing pretty good, it's it's making a lot of noise. So I said, okay, cool, that's fine. So me not ever traveling across seas, he's over in uh, London with Tim and Barry. And I'm outside walking downtown Chicago and my phone rings. And the first call, this guy uh, crossfire watching witness. Hey bro, you gotta give me that, man. What's up with that Area 72? I just had to stop. I'm like, what? What you say? What's up with Area 72? i will how you know about Area 72? Me saying about, saying next was, the title is right, but how did they hear Area 72? Me not knowing about, don't watch that TV and the time that it comes on here in the States but the time you actually play. Soon as, I said, I had to call you back. Before I could hang up the phone, another phone call comes in. Hey, Joe, it's man. I need that Area 72. How did you, what? He said, Rashad played it. When? Just now, bro, just now, bro. I didn't see the tape until two days later and I saw it and he actually played it in his entirety and he stopped it. That was the first world premiere of any track that was footwork made from another country that was never played in its own states and that's when I got the, uh, hey, it's time for you an album. Can you drop us an album? And that's when I did Legacy. I'm like, You've been waiting for four years. Let's give an album. (laughs) So,
2: what year was this that Area Seventy Two?
1: Area Seventy Two would have been two thousand and nine when I made it. But it just it just uh, came out. It was just here. Here you go. And and Area Seventy Two. The reason why I call it that is because. I like I wanted something different and what it had to say. The year I was born, 1972. My style, my flow, my works, my sounds are from. My last name is space. I'm coming from I'm coming to Earth. So I used everything that was inside of me. Hey, I'm the only like Lil Wayne had a picture on a double XL before he standing on the moon. I looked at it and I said, I'm the only one that can stand on the moon. My last name is Space, I'm a real space man. So I incorporated all that and when I used the sample from uh, Philip Bailey, uh, the easy lover, I was working at uh, this uh, home shopping center uh, Lowe's. And every night at a certain time, the this, this song come on and I just steady bobbed my head. I was like, you know what? I'm going to make this track. And it it worked. I'm talking about it worked. It worked to the point to where, hey, we need this track. And it worked.
2: So did you always have it in your mind that you wanted your music to get out of Chicago? Or was for most of this time you were just like... Fixated on like what is going to make these dancers go, or what is going to make people in Chicago
1: go. It was more about the, the the inner city crowd, the people that's dancing, because when you don't have people around you to motivate you, you it's like you trapped in the box, um, and that plays a big part with people. And I I learned that through through life. Once I became a person of inspiration to others, I said. This is what I want to do, inspire others to do it because I seen too many people trapped in this box. Nobody never thought that this was going to happen to where I said, some people don't like social media, I can deal with it. Uh, the video cameras, the video blogs and all that, it it helped. It's called understand the business and when you understand it, it's, it's a gateway to explore your, your creativity. And like they say, how do you distinguish a fire in a burning building if you can? You close all the windows, no air gets in. So it puts it out. That's like how music is. If you if you want music to deteriorate, don't put it out. Every seapole pole I get, if I can see. So I consider me making the tracks in a building where there's plenty of windows, but there's really no windows. It's just open air. So, it gets out, it gets out, and whoever it gets out to, it grows with them, because they know where the source comes from, it's just I want them to uplift it and take it as far as they can, because I can't do it by myself.
2: And how do you feel about starting to tour as a DJ at the age of 40 when a lot of other people who are DJing are like, maybe I have to quit. I'm too tired right? And traveling the world at 40. Every time I
1: see you, you got a smile on your face. You look like I you're having it. a great time. I, I, I love it because uh, this is something I never thought about. And a lot of people will never get the opportunity. And... Uh, What inspired me to do more and more tours? When I went to uh, my first abroad trip, I did Unsound in uh, Poland, and the guys that represent from Polish Juke came to support me, and they had a conversation with me on a uh, was it Friday night? Yes, Friday night. So the guy says, "Um, "Hey." If we ever came to the United States and we went to BG's on 87th Street, would there be a problem for us to come in? Like, no. Why? And I'm like, better yet, dad probably asked you guys, can we go back with you? And the guy told me, say, we were just wondering because we here in Poland, it's like some people can't get a passport. It's like you will never get a passport to get out, to go out of the country. He said, and that's something that we always want to do. We want to see footwork for what it really is. That right there, uh, I sat back and I went to my hotel room and I really thought about it. I say, I never thought that this was possible. I thought anybody could get a passport. And that right there made me think about people. I say, if they can't come see us, i would be glad to keep hopping these flights to come see them. Give them what they don't see. And nobody knew what was going to happen the next night. So when I came back to Unsound to do my show, the guys were sitting front and center having a good time. But what I just turned the knob up at, uh, I come from behind the turntables and there was enough room and it's hundreds of people just standing there, the lights going on and off, and I say, hey, nobody uh, asked the question, they're saying, do I know how to footwork? And I gave them a show. So they asked, we saw footwork, and right there, I say, if they never see it again, here it go, right here.
2: So now that you're traveling the world a lot, and going to places like Shanghai and Poland and stuff, is it harder Your music is so rooted in Chicago and this dance history and the people that you're around. Like how has it changed your music to be traveling all around the world, and is it hard to not be in Chicago as much because is Chicago essential to the music that you make?
1: Chicago's where I just sleep at when I'm at home. That's it. That I don't think nothing else about it. The, the, the city is already embraced. Some people talk about, oh, we got to do this for our city. No, you don't. It was already done a long time ago. It, it, it's been done. You don't have to, there's nothing to prove in Chicago. Nothing. So when I go out, the only thing that changes is if I hear something that. I learned or I heard from these different countries or if it's a track that motivated me. So that's different. So it's growing outside of Chicago now. It's growing in other countries. No matter if people don't think so, oh, it's growing. It's it's growing. There's no limit to it no more. It's just do it. Do it. Be happy that you're doing it and... People that really love it, embrace it, the, the the good part I like about it is being able to go to different countries that Spin and Rashad didn't touch or places that they didn't go to or people hearing, oh, we heard Spin and Rashad, now we get to hear you. But they knew that Spin and Rashad were like, wait till you hear RP. And the response is to, hey man, What's this? Hey Joe, how you do this? We ain't never heard nothing like this. We we know some of the tracks, but where is this stuff coming from? Like so majority of it is like classics. And when I do play the new stuff, I I announce it. And they be like, wait a minute, It it constantly changes? That's me. I don't stay stuck in one. I could my, my root is rhythm. But the change of it is how the sample going to go or how I might say something and how I might throw it in and how I might chop it up or make it just fly somewhere else it a pan left, pan right. Uh, and people like, we're not used to that. Nah, get used to it. But what you do, by the time you catch up to it, I'm about another 20 to 30 years in front of you. So, got to catch up. I'm loving it.
2: What would you say is your main advice for young producers, either about making music or about being in the music
1: business? Put yourself in your music. Just see yourself and what you want to do. You, you got to have an audience. Imagine yourself in the audience but knowing you back there. You know you want to have, I don't care if you physically don't know how to footwork, just as long as you know how to if you could jump up and down, that works. But make your music the way you see other people having a good time to it. But make them be able to be happy that they want to dance and evolve with it. But the, the people that's in your audience, they're you. They are actually you. So just imagine yourself doing thousands of different things at one time, but you have control of it. And knowing that, hey, man, I want more. Focus on them, and one thing about this business that I learned, if it's two things. Either you're gonna do it as an individual or you're gonna do it as a group. If you do it as a group, make sure the people that's with you, that's, that's y'all, y'all plan. You all got to have that same plan and that same vision. Somebody might be the front man, but that front man have to understand something else too. You can't do it all by yourself. And when you do it, don't be disappointed if somebody come knocking at that door. Uh, we, be, we would like to bring one of the people out of that group to another level. Not saying they going to another group, but they going solo. I have seen too many people break up because of that, but that's the game, that's the business. Be able to license yourself, incorporate yourself, be able to do your publishing, get your publishing situated, get all that done, and this is not a career. A lot of people think it's a career. What well, they think is a career because of they see the TV cameras, the media going. If you got a good label, they give you, you're going to get the press. You will get press, but just because I know people that does that did have press, but didn't use it, and now they out here hustling, and they mad at the world because, but. Same opportunities I had. Answer your emails. Please answer your emails. <laughs> be on time. <laughs> be, be, be polite. Because no matter what, until the day you own your own, you still have to work for somebody. There's nothing wrong with being a servant for somebody else. Because one day somebody's going to be a servant for you, and you have to be able to pass it on from generation to generation. And if you happen to be one of those people that what we say few are, many are called, but few are chosen. Just because you chosen don't mean you're going to make it all the way. But if you, if you do, you might be able to be the person that gets the calling. There's a difference between the calling and the career. The person who gets the calling is the person that a lot of stuff gravitates to them without them even knowing. But other people will see it. You have to be prepared to understand if you open up something and there's going to be people that's follow behind it, there's going to be people that's going to be able to take it to another level and get paid way more money than you do. But they know and the industry know that you are the source. That means you did your job. If a person taking it out of hand and saying, oh, this is my intent to be better than the person who I got it from, I guarantee you they will fail, so don't worry about it. Take it day by day, don't rush it. If it took me 21 years, 21 years to finally get to where, I say, I get to do what I really want to do. Now the tour is taken off. The average person, you tell them, Hey, it's going to take you 15 years. They ain't trying to hear that. <laughs> what you mean? But when the person opens that door and it's open, me, Rashad, Tracksman, Spear, we open the door. And that door means to what? We travel. When we open that door, all the other people have to do is just walk through it comfortably. But we still have people that don't know how to walk through it comfortably, and we just say, hey, our job is done. We opened the door. We know what we had to do. And I'm so glad that I was not the first person to do it. Believe me, I'm so glad, because what happened to a lot of people after me was like, they don't want to hear nobody else no more, and it's like... I said, man, thank you. That's why I say, it's for other people to enjoy. That's why I open this door to say, go, just go, just go, please go. And always have a positive attitude. Don't be scared to put yourself in your music and don't let nobody tell you that you can't do it. You can do it, it might take you some years, might take you some months, but once you get it, that overwhelm season it will come in, but don't stop, don't stop until you can't do it no more meaning you physically can't get up. And that's me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes.
0: Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. Almost every year since 1998, we have done the main academy event in one city. But we also do various things around the world throughout the year. In fact... We may just be doing an event near you pretty soon. If you want to find out more, do check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us uh, while you're at it. It really does help other people discover the podcast. For now, thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom.